Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Jed Emerson, director of the concept of blended value and managing director for integrative performance with Uhuru Capital Management. Jed Emerson, welcome to the New School. Great to be with you. Judd, you are the founder of really almost a philosophical perspective on investment and uh, forms of value investing that blend social and economic value that you call blended value investing. Could you start by describing what blended value investing really means? Well, when we think about the value that's created by capital and companies, we often think about it as an either-or proposition. Um, either you're out to make as much money as you can or you're out to do good. Uh, you either invest or you uh, make charitable gifts. And I think that the main point that I'm trying to make with the blended value proposition is to say that we really need to think about value as uh, a totality, um, really on a holistic basis, and understand that it's not either or, it's both and. Um, and that that's really the fundamental nature of value, that you cannot bifurcate value. Now, you've done this with a really extraordinary set of partners. Uh, you've been at Stanford Business School. Uh, you've worked with uh, the Hewlett and Packard Foundations. You're currently a senior fellow with Generation Foundation of Generation Investment Management, which is the uh, investment firm that Al Gore started. And... Um, you are at the Said Oxford uh, School, the Said Business School at Oxford University, and you are uh, just recently appointed managing director for integrated performance with Uhuru Capital. So you've been at this for quite a while with remarkable partners. So this must be an idea that is catching on in some significant ways. Well, I think what's, what's happening is that in a, in a variety of uh, silos, if you will, or areas of practice, many people across the board are really coming to see the limitations of a, a bifurcated approach to value, if you will. And, and folks are really grappling with, you know, well, how do you actually not only think about value as, as being a whole uh, function, but also how do you execute strategies that can really try to capture that value? And so I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to work with a whole host of folks in a variety of areas. And when you talk about the different silos that this is taking place in, uh, in your, your map of blended value, you list five silos. Could you describe what those are? Sure. Um, let me first kind of step back and talk about why I decided to work on the blended value map. Along yeah, that would be with really colleagues. useful. Yeah. Um, Basically, I, I came into this out of traditional social work um, and had been working with a homeless youth program in San Francisco and was then tapped by uh, George Roberts of Colbert Kravis Roberts to begin working with him through his philanthropy on the whole idea of how do you use uh, market-based mechanisms to advance social good. And so I ran a, a fund with George and with Melinda Twan for about a decade, experimenting with a variety of these strategies uh, from a philanthropic kind of perspective. And as we started taking our work out and sharing it with other people during the, the course of that 10-year period, I found that I was having conversations with people who were 
philanthropists. I was in discussions with people who were mainstream market rate investors. I was talking with for-profit business people and nonprofit entrepreneurs. And what I found was that at this, I had this sense that at its core, all of these people were grappling with the same challenge of how do you maximize value? And what was common in these conversations was that in each case, people were thinking of value as being more than either simply social impact or economic performance, but really thinking of it as something of the whole, something of both. And so that's where I decided to, to kind of take some time to step back and really try to look at, well, who all is really having these discussions and what is it that they're learning? So take us on from there, because stories are such a powerful way of learning. Tell us the rest of your trajectory up to the present uh, in developing this concept of blended value. Well, I, I started uh, pursuing the blended value concept during a period when I had the, the good fortune to have a faculty appointment at Harvard Business School. And um, one of the things that I think has been happening is that uh, a lot of students have been really uh, looking at their future and looking at their careers and saying to themselves that, you know, they, they really don't want to uh, buy into this either-or thing of, you know, I'm going to be a business person for 20 years and then I'll go do some good, uh, or I have to go into the nonprofit sector and that means I can't, you know, deal with finance or capital asset management strategies. And so I was asked to, to um, work with the folks at Harvard Business School around, you know, creating more of a curriculum that they could use with their students to explore some of these themes in these areas. And so while there, I really, you know, again, had the good fortune to be able to step back and look at the previous 10 years of work that I've been engaged in with the Roberts Foundation and really reflect on many of the conversations that we've had and the learnings that we took away from that. And is that where the blended value concept emerged uh, theoretically? Exactly. It's really the point at which I, I, I had the chance to sit back and really think about, well, what is it that is really happening here? And how is it that people are thinking about it? And, you know, again, in business schools and in the business community, you know, the fundamental question is, what, you know, what is your value proposition? What is it that you're bringing to the market that customers will find of worth? And, again, I think that in many cases, what we're seeing increasingly is both in the corporate sector and in the nonprofit sector, uh, a lot of individuals are coming to the conclusion that the value they're creating uh, really is more than simple economic or social value. It's really some sort of blend of the two. Um, but we live in a bifurcated value world, and so figuring out you know, how do you execute on a blended value vision is really quite challenging. So after Harvard, where did you take this work? Uh, after Harvard, I then... Um, well, actually, what happened was I, I realized that I really loved the West. Right. <laughs> and so um, I decided I wanted to move to the Rockies, uh, which I did. And so I resigned my appointment at Harvard. And it was at that point that Stanford Business School uh, came and, and said, look, you know, um, if you're willing to, to commute periodically, you can live in Colorado and still be affiliated with our program. And, you know, would you join us for a, a three-year period? Uh, in order to, you know, do some teaching, but really primarily to work on your research and the writing. And so that's what I did for that three-year period. And it was at that point that I also uh, was a senior fellow with the Hewlett Foundation and Packard Foundations. Um, and so I was able to kind of have a really interesting uh, uh, 
space that kind of bridged philanthropy and business and, again, helped me work on advancing some of these ideas. Now, Al Gore uh, uh, has become well-known for being involved with uh, generation investment management. And actually, you and I had an opportunity once in New York to sit down with his partner in generation investment management, and I learned something about it. Um, how have they been doing, uh, particularly in the economic crisis that we find ourselves in? What is the, what is the, the sheer economic value proposition uh, that they've brought to the table, and how has it turned out so far? Well, again, the, the first thing I should say is since I'm affiliated with the foundation side, I have to be very uh, circumspect in terms of what I say about the fund side. Um, so people would have to go and contact the firm itself to get specific performance uh, information. But let me begin by saying that that Generation is one of the leading investment groups that really is thinking of investing on an integrated basis uh, where they take fundamental financial analysis and then augment that analysis with social and environmental analysis in order to give their analysts a more whole perspective of corporate performance today and what people anticipate that performance will be in the future. And so Generation is basically executing, in many ways, this kind of you know, blended analytic to look at corporate uh, performance and analysis. And so that's the basis upon which they're managing uh, their firm's funds. And uh, you've gone on, obviously, to this uh, uh, involvement with the uh, Oxford Said uh, Business School, School of uh, Oxford, let me say that again, the Said Business School at Oxford University. That's correct. And you've been involved with the Skoll Foundation there and so on. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of energy that uh, of listeners in the United States may not be so aware of uh, with the Skoll Foundation and uh, at Oxford. Tell us what that nexus of energy is like. Well, it's, uh, it's really pretty incredible, to tell you the truth. Uh, every year in uh, late January, uh, people come together from around the world to participate in what's called the Skoll Forum. And the, the actors who are coming together represent a cross-section of capital providers and entrepreneurs who are really engaged in uh, you know, changing the world through the course of the work that they're involved in. Um, many of these folks identify with the title of social entrepreneur, um, which has emerged over the past decade as being a, a, a label for folks who are really using kind of innovative strategies to create social change and oftentimes are using market-based strategies to do just that. Um, and so it's really it's a coming together of some of the, you know, the good and the great, if you will, uh, involved in social entrepreneurship uh, from around the world. Yes, let's, let's spend a moment on that issue of social entrepreneurship. Uh, we've talked at the New School with Bill Drayton of Ashoka, uh, Entrepreneurs for the Public, who really was one of the first people to develop the concept of social entrepreneurs. Uh, and there's a recent book out by a colleague of yours, uh, John Elkington, and another colleague of ours, uh, Pamela Hardigan, on uh, social entrepreneurship. And it seems to me that as a driving force, uh, that... Uh, concept of the social entrepreneur really is sort of the leading conceptual edge of the blended value proposition that we're discussing. Yes, I think that's true. I, I think that, again, uh, part of this comes out of the fact that the, the, the ways of thinking and the tools that are available for people who 
want to, on the one hand, create significant change in their world, but on the other hand, want to really draw upon the expertise and acumen from the business community with which to do that, um, the tools really are, are, are limited and they're emerging, I guess you could say. And so uh, we're finding this, this whole discussion and community has come forward over the last decade of folks who are doing just that. And, and so that's really where a lot of the, you know, the passion and the excitement comes, is that you have a set of actors who are really exploring some very new territory uh, and are coming at that territory from a variety of approaches. Uh, it's not you know, just social workers. It's not business people who are concerned with corporate social responsibility. It's not just social investors. It's really a, a broad cross-cut of all those spaces. Um, and that's why it becomes so exciting in the academic setting to bring those folks together at Oxford in order to, uh, more structured way, explore uh, what they're finding, uh, what their thoughts are, what kind of tools they're developing. Uh, it's, it's a really great period to be involved in this work. So give us an example of a social entrepreneur creating blended value that you think has really changed the world in some significant way. Well, I think that probably one of the best examples is the whole area of microfinance. Um, in that space, you have a set of actors, obviously the, one of the most famous being Muhammad Yunus, but also uh, Maria Otero from Axion and a whole host of folks really have helped build that field. And many of these... Uh, got their initial start with philanthropy and with um, people making grants to them so that they could go out and <clears throat> then make loans, uh, very small loans to individuals in their communities or um, beyond, uh, who then could start small business enterprises that, that might augment their income or in some cases become real revenue streams for them. And over time, uh, as these practices uh, became more formalized, as people began to really learn how, how to do microfinance, if you will, uh, we saw that many of these institutions ended up you know, going through the extent of what they were able to finance with philanthropy, and they would end up then with, if you will, a stack of IOUs from the different people that they had lent to. And so in the last five years, you have groups like Developing World Market, uh, and other actors coming in and restructuring those notes um, and providing uh, bond offerings in the first world to individuals, uh, to foundations, uh, to other folks who would buy these bonds, and the money from those bonds would then be used to restructure the capitalization of these microfinance funds. So you have, in the case of microfinance, a really great example of social entrepreneurs with, with a vision that was more than economics and more than social impact, but really a blending of the two. You have a set of actors who came to the table using traditional tools and approaches, but who rapidly began to modify and expand that toolkit. And you have a set of capital players who are uh, doing more than philanthropy and more than traditional investing. And so in, in each of those ways, I think you're seeing you know, how in the case of microfinance, people have basically moved into, uh, whether they, they use this language or not, a, a blended value framework of understanding and practice and capital structure. Someone said to me recently that microfinance had proven able to improve the well-being of the poor people who were involved, but it didn't turn out to be effective in moving them uh, into or toward the middle class. And I just, I found that a striking observation. I don't know whether it's true or not. Uh, would you 
Is there any generalization like that that you say can be derived from the experience of microfinance? Well, I, I think it's hard to make those types of generalizations simply because of the diversity of funds that are out there right. and the different types of strategies that people are pursuing. Uh, I've also heard the argument made that microfinance helps the poor, but it doesn't help the critically poor. <laughs> so yes. people have also said, in addition to your critique, that it doesn't help the middle class, that it doesn't help you know, the extremely poor. Right. And I guess you know, my response to that is really to kind of say, look, I mean, you know, if, um, if all you have is a hammer, then the entire world right. uh, you know, is uh, you know, just a nail. Or right. if all you have is a grant, then the entire world is a charity case. Right. Um, you know, what we need is a diversity of approaches and practices that can range uh, in terms of the capital they draw upon everywhere from grants to recoverable grants to below market rate loans to, to market rate products. Because the point here, I think, is to create a seamless flow of capital and companies that flow from traditional nonprofit uh, to fully based market uh, companies. And, and it's the question of that linkage and that flow that I think is what a lot of us are grappling with. So. In addition to microfinance, is a great example of a field in which blended value is uh, emerging. Uh, can you give us one more example of a, of a field where you think uh, there's uh, really significant progress? Well, I think another area where you could look at would be the whole uh, area of homeless economic development. Um, there are a growing number of nonprofits in the U.S. that uh, are realizing that have worked with the homeless population for a long time and have realized that you obviously, even if you stabilize somebody in housing, transitioning them back into the workforce can really be a long-term challenge. And so what many of these groups have done have been to create <clears throat> their own market-based enterprises that really are targeted with a, a, a dual goal or mission of being economically viable, but also fulfilling this social mission of providing transitional employment uh, to folks who really need that as a way to get back into the mainstream. And so, for example, in New York, you have the group Housing Works, which does housing, it does support services, it has a restaurant, it has a bookshop, it has a uh, very high-end used clothing store, consignment store, um, and they've done very well in terms of creating real impact for hundreds of people in the New York area and also doing that on a sustainable basis that really integrates kind of traditional uh, social work with non-traditional enterprise development. Uh, I want to take a little detour here because we're speaking uh, in August of 2008 in the midst of a really extraordinary uh, crisis, I don't think is too strong a word, of, of uh, global uh, finance and markets. Um, from all your work uh, on uh, blended value and just thinking about the world of finance and development and so forth. Do you have an analysis or a perspective on what's happening both in the United States and globally that goes beyond what our listeners may be uh, uh, familiar with? You know, I'm, I'm actually not sure that I do. Um, and, you know, I think that when you look at what's happening in the global uh, credit markets, we clearly are seeing a a disconnect between the practices that people thought we were engaging in in terms of third-party you know, uh, accreditation of these notes and what actually was uh, underwriting those instruments that folks were buying. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, 
that whole analysis moves into an area that's just not uh, my area of expertise to be able to really comment effectively on. Right. So let's go back to the the five silos of uh, uh, that a lot of the thinking about blended value takes place in, and in, in your map of blended value. The the list that I have is uh, corporate social responsibility, social enterprise, socially related uh, investing. Uh, social investing on community double bottom line investing, strategic philanthropy and sustainable development. Um, could you just comment a little on why you picked those five silos and uh, what they have in common and what their differences are? Sure. Well, I think that um, we, we chose those in part simply because, you, you know, you start where you are <laughs> and, uh, you know, as they, as they say, you know, where you stand depends on where you're sitting. Uh, so these are all sets of actors who I came in contact with during that 10-year period of working with the Roberts Fund. And as I began to explore this, uh, I began realizing that in the for-profit corporate space, uh, where people were grappling with issues of corporate social responsibility, a lot of the questions and the challenges that they were confronting were actually very similar to the social enterprise space, which is where nonprofits are operating market-based business enterprises uh, toward a community or social goal. And so those two silos, to me, seem very related, but the difference was that the place where those managers and those investors were housed was in you know, a for-profit or a nonprofit structure, uh, and yet there was a common set of themes and issues that they were grappling with. And then if you, if you leave the organizational side and go to the capital side, the evolution of strategic philanthropy is really an evolution of uh, thinking from simply a kind of a charitable gifts model toward one where you're saying, look, you know, philanthropy actually is a very precious form of capital. It's kind of you know, no interest capital, if you will, and it needs to be managed on more of an investor basis. And so the questions and the issues and themes that, people within strategic philanthropy were raising sounded very similar to some of the questions and issues and themes that people in the social investing space were also grappling with. And, you know, there were questions of, you know, rates of return, how to most effectively structure the capital, uh, how do you understand and measure social impact and social return on investment. Um, these these uh, two silos of strategic philanthropy um, and social investing had a lot in common. And then finally, you know, one of the places where these, you know, were coming together in a more formalized way is the whole area of sustainable development. Because in that space, a lot of the actors are really grappling very intentionally with, you know, the, the integration of economic performance with environmental and social value. And so as I sat back and looked at these five areas, it just seemed very clear that the common theme was a commitment to maximizing value uh, that really cross-cut each of those five silos. You know, I've had an interesting experience over the last, uh, I'd say, three to six months um, uh, about this whole issue of blended value. I feel like I really finally got it. Um, and I think that what happened to me, having spent uh, you know, over 30 years primarily in the nonprofit field, I really did think for a long time that public benefit came from really highly effective strategic nonprofit work. And I thought that the, uh, 
you know, efforts to do this stuff from the for-profit side were sometimes positive, sometimes greenwashing. But I must confess, even though uh, I, and I feel sort of remiss that it took me so long, that I didn't really, really get it at the deep level that you've gotten it until I understood that, uh, and actually uh, John Elkington and Pamela Hardigan's book on this helped me, until I understood that, that the only way that real change takes place is when markets change. And changing markets is something that nonprofits sometimes do, but that actually you know, involves a sort of a fundamental engagement on the for-profit uh, side. So I just want to sort of confess that I've been a laggard in, in understanding the power, the full power of these ideas. Uh, and I wonder whether you see a kind of a similar shift taking place as the work that the Skoll Forum is doing and your work and obviously the work of Bill Drayton at Ashoka and many others uh, uh, sort of really takes hold. I, I feel like... Uh, this may be a moment at which those conceptual barriers are finally breaking down and people are understanding um, how fundamentally important blended value is as a way of looking at these things. Right. Well, you know, I think the thing that's interesting is I, I'm not really invested in uh, the language debates, if you right. will. And I, I think a lot of people are using various terms to describe what, for me, are really fundamentally the same things. Right. And when you understand it that way, I think it becomes even more striking, uh, the degree to which these ideas are gaining currency and moving into the mainstream. And, and the, the reality is that I think, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, there may have been folks with similar ideas that, that really kind of go back decades, if not centuries, in terms of how we, we think about and understand value. But part of the, the challenge has been that the institutions that we had to work with and the instruments we had to, to apply really didn't lend themselves to this. Um, you know, you really didn't have the, the level of activity in the for-profit sector of for-profit businesses really exploring what stakeholder and environmental value means for their financial bottom line and understanding that you can't, you know, uh, simply view the one without consideration for the other. And I think you also have had, uh, let's say, in the last decade or so, uh, a host of people like myself who actually came out of the, the social uh, arena and really have been frustrated with the inability of, you know, the traditional nonprofit organization to create sustainable change along the lines that I think we all envision and we all understand as being really critically necessary. And it's not that, you know, in this future that we're building you know, the traditional company or the traditional nonprofit will not have a place. It's really that we're moving beyond those traditional structures and we're looking for, you know, new and better ways to create more value than we have in the past relative to the performance of those institutions. I'm talking with Jed Emerson, who is Managing Director of Integrated Performance with Uhuru Capital Management and has developed the concept of blended value. And we'll be back for the second half of the conversation in just a moment.
Jed, tell us a little about this new position as Managing Director of Integrated Performance with Uhuru Capital Management. Uh, what is Uhuru Capital Management? What will you be doing for them? Sure. Well, Uhuru Capital Management is a, a new firm that's recently been launched by uh, Peter Kellner and Neil Goldberg. Uh, Peter has been a, a venture capitalist and has also been a social entrepreneur, has launched, uh, was the co-founder of Endeavor, which works in emerging markets to connect entrepreneurs with capital. And uh, Neil uh, uh, founded Capital IQ, um, grew that company, and uh, successfully sold that, and has been really exploring a lot of these ideas and themes for several years. And the two of them have come together to launch Uhuru, uh, in order to have a, an investment platform uh, that the, the, well, the first will be a fund of funds that will be investing in emerging markets, and other funds will be offered over the coming years that, that will be uh, sustainability-oriented, uh, education-oriented. You know, we're going to explore a number of different areas potentially. And, you know, again, the, the challenge that Uhuru has is the same as any investment group which is that we really want to be exploring how to think about uh, the performance of the fund on an integrated basis and how to develop metrics and frameworks to look at that performance over time in a way that certainly gives full value to financial performance and return for investors, but also is able to capture some of the social impact and environmental value that can be created through the correct application of capital at the same time. Now, will the firm be trying to maximize financial return or simply to create a, a, a fair return? What, what is the philosophy of uh, investment in terms of maximizing financial return while doing all the other good things? Sure. Well, for this first fund, it will be to maximize financial performance and to uh, support social entrepreneurs and the expansion of social entrepreneurship uh, around the world. So the firm itself will be providing its investors with, with full financial performance, and the firm will be taking a quarter of its uh, performance uh, compensation and putting that towards supporting Ashoka, uh, possibly Endeavor, other groups that are working around the world uh, to, again, advance uh, social entrepreneurship. And so um, it's really trying to connect the investing in emerging markets with um, kind of mainstream instruments, if you will, with the support and creation of social entrepreneurship within those same markets. Um, and again, this is just the, the first offering. Uh, over the next years, there'll be other offerings that would probably play with that equation in different ways. So as, as I understand it, one of the, uh, and I don't know what the right terminology is. It may be social enterprise. Or let me ask it this way. Is social enterprise a synonym for for-benefit corporations? Do those uh, refer to the same things? In other words, this firm, Uhuru, is going to try to maximize financial return for its investors and then take part of its profit and do good things with Ashoka and other organizations, which is a great model. There are other uh, people who set out from the start to uh, do the good things without maximizing the financial return, either giving investors some kind of, quote, fair return or simply uh, 
trying to launch an enterprise that pays for itself but doesn't necessarily generate a lot of profit. So is, I'm not entirely familiar with uh, the difference between for-benefit uh, corporations and social investing. Are they the same thing? Well, I guess, again, I would, I would take one step back, yeah. and I would say that all organizations, whether nonprofit or for-profit, uh, should pursue full financial performance. Uh, but the trick is how we define full financial performance will differ based on the type of actual organization it is and the type of investors who are putting capital into that organization. Um, if a nonprofit doesn't try to pursue full financial performance for the charitable gifts that it receives, that nonprofit will go out of business. Um, if a for-profit doesn't pursue you know, the full financial value that its investors are seeking and that its entrepreneurs have presented, then it will also go out of business. So the, the, the idea is that, to my mind, what we're trying to drive toward are, is, a, is a, a model of maximizing performance across the board, uh, financially, environmentally, socially. And the challenge is that different institutions will understand what that uh, value maximization looks like based on you know, their vision, based on the types of investors they have, based on um, maybe the, the philanthropic investments that are being made. And I think that's, the, that's the, the overarching framework. Now, when you think about that, then you can look at a, a timberland as a, a for-profit company that obviously you know, wants to maximize financial value, but it's also looking at how to, to do more to maximize its social and community connections and networks and value that it can create uh, through its core business practice. Um, and there are nonprofits, again, Housing Works and other groups, um, that also are really focused on maximizing their financial performance for the type of organization they are and maximizing the social impact that they can have as an entity. Um, so when you think about a for-benefit, I think for-benefit is simply one more term that kind of complements this idea of, of trying to maximize performance and value. Um, now, specifically, people may be interested to know about uh, B-Lab, um, which is a, a new initiative that was launched this past year, which is really trying to look at how do you, as you were saying from the beginning, incorporate those values into what are, in essence, for-profit companies. And so what they have done has been to uh, recruit a whole host of for-profit B-Lab? B-Lab, How yeah. do you spell that? Uh, B-L-A-B. Okay. And what they have done has been to recruit uh, a whole host of companies and a growing number of firms that actually within their... Um, their articles of incorporation within their charter uh, speak to this question of stakeholder engagement and involvement and social value creation um, so that that then gives the managers and the investors the legal framework, if you will, uh, to really try to pursue that, that total value proposition that the firm is trying to engage in. Yes, I had been on the B-Lab website before, and so they talk about what are B corporations, what are the benefits of becoming a B corporation. So you say this is one of the, the places uh, that this enterprise is, is developing conceptually. Yes, and, it, and it's one of the places where people are really grappling with the standards of performance for these types of firms. Um, you know, 
again, to your earlier comment about greenwashing, um, you know, it could be very easy for a company to say, oh, we're very committed to the community, uh, oh, we're very socially oriented, but, but how do you actually assess the performance of that company? Um, how do you really understand the impact, you know, that it could be having? And I think, again, one of the areas where there's been a lot of work done in the last decade has been in this area of corporate performance. And I think this is true on the nonprofit and the for-profit side, uh, where we're starting to see uh, better standards, uh, better indices of performance, uh, better frameworks for understanding how you look at a company, whether nonprofit or for-profit, and assess its total value. And as these frameworks come forward, more and more folks are able then to apply them, to use them, and they get improved as we go forward in time. That question of performance and metrics, it always sounds like such a dry issue uh, to many people. But as you're saying, it's really, really fundamental. If, if we're going to distinguish between greenwashing and really effective uh, blends of whatever kind, um, the, the performance metrics are fundamental. You've written and talked about that, but give us a sense of uh, how that field is moving forward. Well, I, I guess the first thing I'd have to say is in response to your, your thinking of this as a, as a dry uh, area, I mean, I have to say, I just have to laugh when I look at myself and my involvement in this very topic. I mean, my, my background is in community social work. Uh, before I started on this trajectory, the last thing I was doing was running a program for homeless youth. I, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would become you know, a proponent and a practitioner of this form of metrics and analysis and discussion. Um, so I have to say it's just kind of funny to think about that. And I, I think that this is true of a lot of people. I think more and more folks are realizing that if you really care about social value, you have to care about the way that people are documenting the creation of that value. And we have to, as a, a larger community, um, really get clarification on, you know, what are we really talking about? How do you assess that performance? What does it really mean? So, for example, uh, there's the concept of social return on investment. And uh, many folks, I think, are familiar with cost-benefit analysis. And it, the social return on investment is basically um, a, an iteration of that idea to another level that really looks at, from the investor perspective, from the, the perspective of capital performance, how do you assess social and environmental impact? And uh, we started working with, with that framework and with these ideas, um, you know, back with the Roberts Fund. Uh, and today, it's, it's really fascinating to watch the, the various ways that that basic concept has evolved and been applied in a variety of, of uh, areas. And in fact, I was on a, the phone the other day with a colleague uh, who was telling me that the, the, the British government has now put out an RFP uh, asking for uh, a group to come forward to work with the government on creating a social return on investment framework that they could use uh, to assess the performance of their public dollars. So I think that... Um, it's those types of ideas that are moving forward that really get pretty exciting because um, if, you, if you really look at the numbers, you understand that, that the numbers are simply telling stories and there's a, a narrative numeracy that we need to advance and be comfortable with uh, if we're really going to be able to capture the value and create the impacts that we all are, aspire to. And I think that's the reason why uh, myself and other folks who are, you know, traditionally out of the social sector have really become uh, more and better equipped 
to talk about finance, to understand capital structure, and to look at how do you take uh, a numeric approach and analysis to, to uh, things that sometimes are quantifiable but other times are qualitative and, and wrap that into an integrated analysis that can really help represent the full value that's being created. So can you give us an example of a successful effort to capture a social value in a, a financially driven organization or community? Well, I guess the, the first thing I'd say is that um, when I look around the variety of work that's taking place across the world, there's some really great initiatives, and I would say none of them have really gotten it yet. <laughs> I think we're all grappling with, you know, how do you really do this? What does it really mean? Uh, now, having said that, uh, I think the New Economics Foundation out of uh, Britain has done some really great work in, again, documenting social return on investment. Um, on the, the capital market side, there's an initiative called the Enhanced Analytics Initiative, which is sponsored by, in part by Generation, but also by Goldman Sachs and other investment houses, uh, where basically they're promoting um, a, a, a competition, if you will, for traditional financial analysts to uh, advance uh, analytic frameworks that capture uh, more of the environmental and social value of publicly traded companies than traditional financial analysis allows you to do. And so the Enhanced Analytics Initiative is really saying, look, you know, we need to be uh, moving these frameworks forward and bringing them into practice. And it's really those types of practices that investment groups like Generation and, and certain parts of Goldman Sachs and other investment houses are now actually applying in practice uh, as they manage uh, assets for their investor groups. Are any of the big accounting firms doing this? I remember a conversation with a colleague, Randy Hayes, who's very involved with these issues, who suggested that one of the great leverage points uh, in the financial system would be if, uh, if firms were required uh, when they had their uh, uh, CPA audits to have triple bottom line audits. And it seems to me uh, the question of how you would construct a triple bottom line audit is exactly the uh, question we're talking about. Right. Well, again, I think that there's a couple of things. One is increasingly um, accountants and folks in the, the traditional uh, for-profit arena are really seeing the potential implications of this type of analysis. Uh, I'm actually not sure that regulation is needed uh, because uh, what we're really seeing is more companies are recognizing that this actually is, uh, can become a part of competitive advantage for them. Um, if you think about the evolution of corporate social responsibility, um, which is the, the basically the practice of for-profit companies uh, looking at their operations and themselves as being social actors and how they can you know, fulfill their social responsibility. The first kind of evolution of that came in the 70s when you had the EPA and other governmental regulators coming in, and the orientation of the companies was really simply compliance. Um, all they wanted to do was just, you know, meet the terms of the regulation and go ahead and do business as usual. And then in the, in the 80s and the early 90s, you really saw a shift uh, away from compliance and toward the idea that a company really is a, a citizen of the community 
and, and has, you know, responsibilities and obligations as a citizen of the community. And so you saw a lot of what, it, what is currently practiced as corporate social responsibility come forward. But the thing that's been intriguing in the last, let's say, five to seven years is we've now seen this, this evolution uh, from compliance to responsibility to this position that says, you know, in, in a global market, if we're not looking at social and environmental factors and how they not only affect our business model, but could be opportunities for expanding our business in the future, we're really going to underperform uh, relative to our potential. And so you increasingly are seeing, uh, whether it's small companies or large corporations, uh, really repositioning themselves and rethinking uh, what it is that they're bringing to the market and what the value is that they're trying to create, and really doing that with an understanding that to exclude um, social and environmental performance is really for them, it really means that they're carrying off balance sheet liabilities that will, in fact, come back to whack them on their head and will, they will underperform over time. Um, and, and that's been just a striking shift in, in the conversation, the dialogue that you see taking place within the for-profit business community. I mean, I'm not even talking about, you know, the places where you go, you know, where the nonprofits and the for-profits come together. So I, I think that's a very significant shift, and it will just continue over time. And, and I would argue that the, the capital crisis that you referred to earlier is going to force more people to, to really look at these issues and, and try to understand how they can uh, really preserve their assets, but also create the value that they need to create within the market. I'm just noting on Wikipedia that you were talking about the New Economics Foundation, uh, which describes itself as a think-and-do tank uh, in uh, Britain. Uh, and in 2006, they launched the Happy Planet Index, intended to challenge existing indices uh, such as gross domestic product and the human development index. So uh, that's an example of, of some of that kind of thinking. No, that's right. And, and I'd also, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out uh, redefining progress, uh, which has really been in the U.S. one of the leading groups promoting this idea that when we think about GDP, you know, gross domestic product, we really need to be thinking of it on environmental and social terms, because a lot of the economic indicators really don't capture uh, the full cost or benefit of the practices that our economy is engaging in. So I, I think this whole area is really a, a fascinating one, as you, as you can tell. And, you know, you think about the nation of Bhutan, where they're actually tracking uh, uh, the gross national happiness right. index. Um, and I think there's a variety of folks who really are understanding that we have opportunities to, to break through the traditional approaches, both from the social and the economic side, in order to capture and understand more of the fullness of the value that we're all creating through the trajectory of our lives. And as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, when people are really poor, uh, increases in their uh, financial well-being does indeed make them happier, but you reach a point not necessarily too high uh, on the financial spectrum, where happiness does not continue to increase with uh, uh, financial well-being. So that suggests that in a, and again, I, I want your comment on this, but that suggests that in countries that do not tolerate tremendous disparities in wealth and therefore have uh, a greater uh, uh, so social integrity, uh, 
uh, one doesn't have to be too financially well off to live a uh, optimally uh, happy and satisfied life. I think that's that's very true, and I think you see that uh, when you look at the comparative ranking of the United States, you know, versus Europe and, and some of the other na- um, uh, nations that are out there. Um, relative to this question, because the United States consistently ranks below uh, Sweden and Norway and, and uh, other countries with regard to this idea of kind of, you know, total contentment, if you will. Um, and I think that's really cause for us to step back and reflect on what that means for us as Americans. Going back to your work with many foundations, helping them think about blended value, if you were advising a, let's say, a, a a family foundation with a um, with a portfolio of who knows. Uh, uh, let's make it a big family foundation, a hundred million dollars. That's not a really big foundation, but it's big enough to to uh, uh, think about these questions. Suppose the foundation had a portfolio of a hundred million dollars. Um, uh, how would you suggest they think about a a blended value portfolio? Well, I think, that, you know, the first thing that, that people should understand is that the traditional way that foundations have been managed is with what's called the, the 95-5 split, uh, which means that you manage 95% of the assets to maximize financial performance, which then gives you 5%, uh, which is the, the, the level mandated by law, that the foundation then gives away in the form of grants or charitable gifts. And it's also interesting to note that within that 5%, the foundation can also charge all of its administrative costs. So um, we're actually talking about less than 5% is actually going to support the mission of the organization. Um, And so I think, you know, the first question that we need to just ask ourselves is, okay, you know, what's the successful business model that says for every dollar you give me, I'm going to put less than a nickel (laughs) toward my business strategy and, you know, more than, you know, 95% of the dollar that you give me, I'm going to just put off the shelf and put away. And I may even put it into uh, things that are going against the, the mission that it is that you're investing in with your 5%. Yeah, there, there are things that are actively harming health and the environment uh, to a remarkable degree. That's right. And so I, I think that's the first thing that people have to understand is that our traditional approach to philanthropy uh, really is deficient, and we need to rethink uh, what we're talking about, what we're practicing when we engage in, in philanthropy. Now, having said that, I don't think there is a single answer to the question of, you know, how should a foundation or an ultra-high net worth individual approach this challenge of trying to maximize value? Uh, I think in the same way that um, for any investor, there are different investor profiles. Uh, there are different goals that various investors are trying to attain. And therefore, the portfolio that gets created for those uh, individuals and for those institutions will differ across the board. And I think that's fine. Um, I mean, my argument is simply that the, the folks who are the trustees and the fiduciaries of these institutions need to, to really think about uh, what is it that we're fundamentally trying to do and how can we get the greatest alignment between our assets and our mission uh, as an institution and what we're trying to achieve? Um, so I think th- those would be the two kind of starting places for me in a conversation with a foundation of the sort you're describing.
let's just take that one step further. Uh, that would be the starting place. But if you were talking about uh, what beyond market investments they might think about, um, they might think about program-related investments, say, where they're investing in organizations that they care about with loans and the like. Uh, but what would be the other key categories that would be readily accessible to a family foundation that they could go to and say, you know, here are the things that Jed Emerson is actually suggesting we consider. Right. Well, I think um, the first thing is I think it's important to to kind of visualize a capital continuum, if you will, that ranges from a grant uh, on one end to a fully kind of market rate investment instrument on the other end. And to really understand that there are a host of instruments that kind of go from that one extreme to the other. And, you know, today you can invest in sustainable forestry funds, for example, uh, that provide a competitive return for that asset class and yet are also uh, represent forests that are being managed on a sustainable yield basis. Um, you can invest in uh, affordable housing tax credits, uh, which are uh, investment vehicles that allow you to you buy the tax credit, which decreases your tax exposure, um, and that that vehicle that is used to finance uh, inner-city business and housing development efforts. Uh, you could even take uh, a lot of uh, institutions and individuals have CDs or what are uh, called cash equivalents, um, you could even take your, your CD, and if you have a CD in a mainstream uh, company, a mainstream banking institution, you could take that same CD, put it into a community development banking institution like ShoreBank, you would get a competitive financial return, and you would have the same um, ins- you know, FDIC, federally insured coverage for that investment, but those funds would then be used to support inner-city business development and housing efforts. So where um, does an organization or a foundation go to get the kind of detailed information that they would want to be able to consider this range of choices? I mean, are there consultants that they go to, or is there a website or a place where, at the practical level, they could, or an individual who wanted to uh, diversify his own uh, uh, savings— where could you go to find what the real possibilities are? Well, there's, the good news is that I think there are a growing number of resources that are out there. Uh, in terms of websites, well, if, uh, there's a paper that I did with a colleague from the Calvert Foundation, and the paper is called um, the, the, uh, the Investor's Toolkit, and that's on uh, blendedvalue.org. And if you download that, uh, a lot of these ideas and practices are described and outlined there. Uh, Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors uh, have also just published a report called um, Shifting into High Gear uh, that explores some of these same ideas. And a really good report. Yeah, it's a, it's a great report, and they spent a lot of time developing that. Um, also, within these different um, groups, for example, if you're interested in microfinance, there's a website called Mixed Market. And you can go onto that website and you can enter uh, regions that you're interested in and it will show you uh, what um, microfinance funds are active in those areas and uh, oftentimes you're able then to connect with them and and buy their bond offerings or uh, invest in them directly. 
Um, and then uh, if you're interested in more traditional uh, social investing, uh, socialfunds.org um, uh, offers uh, a whole host of um, analyses for a variety of funds that you can compare and contrast performance for. Uh, so I think that uh, there's more and more information out there. Now, I think the, the question is, you know, how do you develop the expertise to really know which of those make sense for which investors? And I think that, um, you know, this may be a, a point of caution uh, for people because I think that what we are seeing is, you know, some mainstream investment houses and advisory groups um, almost, you know, repositioning themselves for this market because they can see that there's demand now for this, uh, but not really necessarily doing uh, their own due diligence or understanding that market as well as I think they, they really should in order to provide that advice to others. Um, so I think you need to be, you know, as you're looking for consultants or advisors to help you understand what's happening in the space, yeah, I think you do need to do some of your own research and reading in order to understand some of the dynamics that are at play. But also, as you vet uh, possible consultants and advisors, I think it's important to really ask them, you know, what is their actual experience? Uh, how did they come to be involved in this arena? Um, you know, where does their knowledge kind of come from? Uh, in order to make sure that you're getting advice that, that, you know, not only is good, but is kind of grounded in the best practice that's out there. Jed Emerson is Managing Director for Integrated Performance with Uhuru Capital Management. Jed, thank you for being with us at the New School. It's been a really terrific exploration of these ideas. It's really been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.